Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 334. My name is Camden Busey. I'm very pleased to be back. Uh, we have with us today Jeff Waddington, who is stated supply at Knox OPC in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. Welcome back, Jeff. It's good to oh, have it's you. Good to be here and on in familiar territory. Yes, yes, we're on the campus of Westminster Theological Seminary, and we are in the office of Dr. William Edgar, who is Professor of Apologetics, correct? Correct. Here at Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Thanks for having us over, Dr. Edgar. It's great to talk to you. It's a pleasure, you guys. Thanks. Well, today we're going to be speaking about this wonderful booklet uh, that Dr. Edgar has written, How Did Evil Come Into the World? It's in the Christian Answers to Hard Questions series, which is published by Westminster Seminary Press in cooperation with PNR Publishing. Uh, we've we've spoken about uh, two other of these booklets, I believe, in the past, one with Dave Garner and one with Brandon Crow, and we are very delighted uh, and excited to speak about this one today on a very important subject, How Did Evil Come Into the World? Before we talk about that, I do need to mention, as I always attempt to do, that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We do uh, rely on the generous support of all of our listeners and viewers to help us con- to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. So please visit us online today at reformedforum.org donate to pledge your support. We thank you so much for all you do, uh, and we thank you also for all the new donors recently helping us to... Uh, bring insight and uh, to bring uh, helpful theological resources to people that would like to grow in their faith. So visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate. Thank you so much for your support of everything we do at Reformed Forum and particularly this program, Christ the Center. Well, Dr. Edgar, as we, um, I think the last time we spoke was on the, the Francis Schaeffer book on his spirituality. Yep. It was a fantastic conversation and I know many of our listeners really appreciated that that discussion and also that book. But what we have here is a booklet proper, uh, just about 30 pages or so. Um, could you describe your involvement with this series and also uh, you know, your desire to write something on this important question? Yeah, so Westminster had the good idea to make some of the core issues of Reformed theology, and particularly those that need defense today, available to the general readership. But not in a large set of volumes, partly because uh, general readers don't tackle large volumes as much as they used to, and partly because it's a great challenge to put into a few pages in a succinct way um, some of the, the core doctrines. So uh, it's a series, and there, there are going to be many others. Um, the one that I was asked to do, How Did Evil come into the world, it's a rather daunting subject to cover in 30 pages. Um, so, th- of course, it's not nearly exhaustive. Um, but my goal there was twofold. One, to uh, bow to the great mystery of God's sovereignty over evil, at the same time man's responsibility for it. And the second, they asked me to mention just some of the issues that relate to science, um, particularly Darwinism, neo-Darwinism, and so forth, and how that might either challenge or harmonize uh, with the scripture. So that's what I tried to do. Well, it's very helpful and uh, no doubt an important question, but one that people struggle with, a lot of people struggle with, and it's a question that is very difficult um, because we know what God has said, um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, we we struggle with understanding how evil could come into this world, given the fact that God is all powerful and and loving. 
but but sometimes the questions or the answers to the question to this particular question are are severely lacking. Um, just as we begin, um, can we speak about evil in general, and especially with a biblical understanding? How do you define evil, and maybe how are some other uh, worldviews and other approaches to this question, how do they define it differently from the biblical notion? Right. So that's, uh, I think, a good place to begin, both theologically and in terms of persuasion. Mm -hmm. When I'm talking to unbelievers about this, I begin almost immediately with the fact that God is against evil. He hates it. And evil is defined as that which is against his character and his law. So uh, there's no sense whatsoever of any kind of uh, composure or accommodation between God and evil. Every page of Scripture virtually uh, explains his utter uh, disdain uh, for for evil. He can't be tempted, nor can he tempt anyone, um, and um, he is of purer eyes than behold evil to behold evil. Now, this great antipathy, while it is shrouded in some mystery is radically different from the way other faiths and other um, philosophies handle it. So, for example, just to be simple, Hinduism and and the extension in Buddhism tends to see evil as a necessary part of the life-death cycle. And therefore, our answer to evil in those systems is detachment, release, nirvana. Um, And... um, so what we as Christians would say is this doesn't take evil nearly seriously enough because evil somehow is a part of the way things are. Um, in atheism, um, evil is is difficult to define because uh, you have to find a standard which somehow allows you to be against obvious evils like slavery and abuse and so forth. But those standards uh, don't seem to have much of a foundation, uh, whereas, again, in the gospel, uh, our standard is, is God. And um, so that is a very important beginning point. What is evil? It's that which is against God, mm-hmm. against his character, and against his law. Mm-hmm. What I particularly appreciate, uh, in addition to beginning with the recognition that there's a problem uh, with the, the human predicament in the world in which we live, but you don't you don't deal with the question of or the problem of evil in, in an abstract fashion. You go one, once you introduce the subject, you go right to the placing the question within the biblical narrative. Uh, can you describe for us how you deal with that in the booklet? Yeah. So instead of being abstract about it, um, because evil confronts all of us like a, a cancer, and because suffering, which is a component of evil. Uh, is the common experience of mankind, um, you you want to be as close to the biblical narrative as you can, and particularly uh, Jesus Christ who came to not just resolve the problem of evil, but to become sin for us, and in so doing to bury it and bury the cancer forever. So um, you can put it abstractly, the David Hume, you know, how can evil exist if God is both good mm-hmm. and powerful? And that's a question that can be asked. It's, I don't think it's the very best way to ask the question, because he's assuming that goodness means something like um, comfortable things or pleasurable things or pleasant things. And he's assuming that power means maybe something very uh, 
arbitrary or almost fatalistic. Uh, mm-hmm. If he would redefine those terms biblically, um, he he could have gotten further than he did. But that's the abstract way. The more concrete way is everybody's experience. You know, we've lost a child. We've uh, we have a friend who's got leukemia. Um, you know, we have a habit we can't shake. That that's the reality of of evil. So it's got to be answered with the the wonderful powerful reality of the biblical narrative. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the biblical narrative there. Um, just the beginning in the garden. How would you unpack uh, the story of, of Adam and Eve? You know, it's a historical event that actually happened. We want to affirm that. Um, but how does that um, help us to understand, uh, you know, how evil came into the world? What does uh, the, what do the events in Genesis, especially Genesis three, tell us uh, about this whole question? How does it frame the discussion? So if you cut out Genesis 1, 2, 3, and maybe 4, you have absolutely no grasp and no grip on on evil. Um, Again, to contrast it with other religions, um, most of the other religions do not have a historical fall. They don't have a before and after. They don't have a pure creation, which was then corrupted because of a human error. so the historical fall is is absolutely crucial to our faith, as is uh, the belief in real individual historical persons called Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, one of them is that in the Bible, humanity is related to Adam as head, and so we're related to one another in him, in a covenant. And uh, th- that helps to explain why everything is fallen uh, and it's not just up to each individual to be either fallen or not fallen. We we fell in Adam. That's a doctrine that's not very popular, but it certainly um, fits the description of, of the world as we know it. So there was a before. The creation was pure, good and very good, the text says. And God... Um, put human beings to a test. He put our first parents to a test, a test of allegiance, first of all, but a test which was meant to uh, improve their condition from perfection to consummate bliss had they passed it. And the whole human race would have presumably been improved with them. As we know, the sad fact is that they failed the probation, they failed the test, and brought the human race down with them. Now, the good news is that Christ who is also the head of the new race, uh, firstborn of creation, but also the firstborn of the church, um, is the new Adam, the second man. And he, uh, if we trust in him, uh, then is our substitute, having taken on himself all of the penalty as well as the pollution of of sin and uh, giving us freedom from it in that way. So historical Adam, historical Christ, they go together. And one thing that comes up in the biblical narrative is this idea of knowing good and evil. How are we to understand that phrase, or better yet, that verb, to know? What does it mean to know good and evil in the biblical sense? Well, my take on that, and I'm I'm following Voss and others on this, is that that knowledge did not have to be knowledge by personal endorsement or knowledge by uh, agreement. Uh, It was knowledge, a brush with evil, knowledge that allows you to recognize it at a deeper level and to resist it. And in that 
experience, you then grow into maturity. There are various re- references throughout the Bible about uh, mature, maturation, some in Isaiah, some in Hebrews. And God's intention for us all along was not to stay in the state of Adam unfallen, though that was marvelous and, and perfect, but was to go even deeper. And so knowledge of good and evil without succumbing uh, was the way he uh, orchestrated this possible progress. And unfortunately, we then knew evil by endorsing it, and um, therefore the remedy could only be uh, Jesus Christ, who, as I said, became sin for us and uh, in his death buried death itself and buried evil, and in his resurrection uh, gave us our justification. Mm-hmm. One thing that uh, Dr. Van Til always pointed out, and also we find this in uh, Biblical Theology by Gerhardus Voss, you know, where you find the discussion on knowing good right. and evil, is this idea of, of Adam and Eve being faced with a radical test of obedience. Um, what are the various possibilities there? They could either obey and, and inherit eschatological life and receive it there, being confirmed in righteousness, or they could fall. Uh, what is the cause, or maybe that's not even the right word, why did Adam and Eve eat the fruit? I mean, what what possibility was there for them? What type of freedom did they have? I mean, what what was going on? So, as we know, they, they um, bought a very faulty argument from the tempter, um, which is that God did not want them to partake of the tree because he was sort of jealous and didn't want anybody to be like him because he already knows good and evil. And um, so they were convinced by this argument and presumably partook of the tree um, because they began to distrust God, to suspect him of of motives uh, that were working against them. Of course, it was uh, the most absurd, irrational decision you could ever make. Sure. Everything in the garden, everything that God said, spoke exactly the opposite of the of the messenger of Satan. But nevertheless, uh, they did, and that that tells us something about evil. There is, of course, a planning. There's a plotting. There's an intentionality. But at a deeper level, there's no reason. There's no good reason. It's an irrational move. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, why do I hate? My brother, why uh, do we uh, abuse others? Why, you know, are we prone or inclined to all kinds of lusts and evils? Uh, there's intentionality there and responsibility, but at another level, it, it's absurd. It's, it's, a, it's the irrational thing that we shouldn't ever have gotten involved with. And also the fact that the serpent is there tempting seems to presuppose that evil is already present in the universe in some regard. There's There's already some malicious intent and malicious agency going on even prior to the human fall and human sin. That's right. Yeah. Of course, that's a difficult one because we don't have yeah. too much data, but we, we, we have to presume from the data that uh, Satan and his minions were fallen angels, unelect, as the New Testament puts it. And so this does not mean that God created evil. This is that's a, a, a huge blasphemy to say that. Uh, but he somehow permitted evil even in the invisible world. And once evil is in the world, visible or not, he's able to use it for his greater purposes. So he did that in the garden. We, it would be pure speculation to think, well, what would he have done if there hadn't been a fall in the um, angelic world? We, we don't know, but um, we do know that 
yeah, as you said, evil was already a, a presence and a, a factor, and that was, should have helped Adam and Eve even more to recognize <laughs> God's authority. Yeah. But then Eve, Eve decided to judge for herself. Adam did as well. And we see, really, the first sin being what, what Dr. Van Til would always like to, to say was, you know, deciding for yourself or lowering God from his rightful place as, as a judge, an arbiter of good and evil and, and all things, and raising oneself to decide between the serpent and God's word. Uh, now, you raised the issue about halfway through the booklet uh, is you ask the question, is God in control? Given the nature of the fall and then the results of the fall, how is how is it the case that God is sovereign and humans are responsible? Right. I mean, this is one of the biggest questions that's ever been asked, and uh, every theologian has attempted a kind of an answer to it. <laughs> right. um, so here's mine. <laughs> yeah, let's do another one. Let's do another one. Let's join the party. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, I think we have to take the data from Scripture, uh, which says on the one hand that God is utterly sovereign. Uh, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He does it freely and wisely. Um, and uh, you can't wiggle out of that by saying, well, he gave a little sovereignty over to human beings or he emptied himself or anything like that because then he's not God anymore. The other message is, nevertheless, human beings are fully responsible. The Westminster Confession in uh, 3.1 says God is not the author of sin, but he sustains secondary causes. Um, so his sovereignty somehow is not only not a contradiction to the presence of evil, but it has something to do with uh, the possibility of evil. Uh, all the while, uh, it's not his fault. He's not accountable for it. One way theologians sometimes talk is, um, that that God did not um, univocally or in a direct way uh, create evil. Um, what is a non-univocal creation? We we really don't know. But he's mm-hmm. he still ordains everything that that comes to pass. But we want to safeguard uh, God from accountability. But we also want to safeguard him from any uh, whiff of a, of a sense that he is not fully in charge. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, to come back to one thing you said, Eve's decision and Adam's endorsement uh, was one of authority. She was taking on herself the authority that only God should have. Mm-hmm. And I, you quoted Van Til. And Van Til often said um, it's, it's about autonomy. Doyavir calls it pretended autonomy. We think we're in charge, but we're not. We have lots of responsibility. We have lots of ability to rule, but we're not uh, ruling the universe. We're not in charge of the universe, and that, that was the classic mistake, and we, we, we echo that ever since. Another thing you bring up in, in the booklet is this notion of, of uh, evil in the metaphysical sense. I mean, how is God related to evil metaphysically? And uh, that's no doubt a philosophical question, but it's certainly something that uh, the Bible needs to regulate and, and let us, you know, we need to use the Bible's categories in understanding what evil is. But in what sense can we talk about metaphysics and evil? Right. So that's another huge issue. Um, first of all, the, the emphasis of Scripture is on the ethical nature yeah. of evil. Um, it's a moral rather than a metaphysical fall. 
uh, again, in contrast to other philosophies that tend to say our problem is we're finite. Our problem is we were coughed up from some evolutionary muck or wh- whatever it might be. We're, we're victims of our overbalanced uh, superego. All of that speaks limitation rather than responsibility. Now, this is not to say that evil has no effect on the cosmos, on the way things are. Of course it does. I called it a cancer a moment ago. It, uh, Romans 8 tells us about the creation groaning um, because of its subjection to God's curse. So um, this is, uh, of course, if you want to call that metaphysical, you can. I'd rather say it's a, it's a real effect, a physical effect, an, an, an actual effect of evil. But the nature of evil is not primarily metaphysical it's it's, yeah. it's ethical yeah that's right and the, you know another phrase to come back to covenantal apologetics is it's an absolute ethical antithesis now between those who've been regenerated and and uh, those who uh, remain in their sin in their natural state and when we make try to substantize things or make things you know some sort of metaphysical reality we can end up into a whole host of odd issues and dualisms and all this these other sort of yeah we can make the unregenerate into aliens rather than the people (laughs) who are headed in the wrong direction now an alternative to considering evil in metaphysical terms and it's related to the ethical is the use of the language of covenant can you explain that in terms of evil, but in terms of the biblical narrative as, as well. So I think the term of covenant is extremely useful in this discussion. First, mm-hmm. because there is a covenant of God with creation. When he relates to this world, he condescends, he covenants uh, by his goodness um, to sustain the world, to give it its glory. Um, and second... Um, he, he covenants specifically with, with mankind when he blesses him and tells him to multiply and subdue the earth and bring glory to him, rest on the Sabbath and, and the, those, those things. And then um, the nature of the fall, while God could have wiped everything out and he would have been perfectly just to do so, um, meant that the covenant was threatened, but God supervened and gave a, a promise to our first parents uh, the protevangelium, mm-hmm. the first gospel, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And most of us understand that although it took a long time and there was seasons of revelation and progressive unfolding, uh, eventually that was Jesus Christ on the cross um, who finished the work of, of the seed of the serpent for once and for all, though there are still remaining uh, aspects of it. So that's a covenant promise, which is reiterated throughout the Old Testament in various forms. The one covenant of grace, having various administrations, Noah, Moses, David, and, and, and finally the new covenant, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Um, so in order, in order to understand the problem of evil, I think the notion of covenant is crucial because um, if we weren't united by covenant, first in Adam and then second for believers in Christ, then it, would be, it wouldn't make much sense that everybody happens to be evil. You know, uh, Why wouldn't just half the world be evil or or a few good guys, or but but no, it, it, we are all inclined because of our covenant relationship yeah. to Adam. So the whole world's under a curse. But 
that sounds like bad news, but it, but it's really good news because the good news is that the covenant is the way in which it's the arrangement by which God redeems His His yeah. people. Because otherwise, we'd be left to our own devices yep. and have to save ourselves. Yep. Yeah. By the one man, sin came into the world, but also by the one man, the last Adam, we can be redeemed. Which raises the question: mm. Okay, how does the uh, incarnation and atonement and so forth? How do these address? the problem of evil. Well, I I like to go to the story of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Uh, You'll remember in John 11, uh, he deliberately delayed coming when his friend was sick and allowed him to die to the puzzlement of his friends and family and so forth. Well, when he got to the tomb, it says he wept and it says he was angry. Twice the word is used that means the fury of a caged-up animal. So Jesus um, was angry at death without being angry at the Creator or at the creation. I like to contrast this to Albert Camus, mm-hmm. who in the plague has the atheist doctor say, I fight the creation where I find it. Jesus doesn't fight the creation. He fights evil, which is an intruder. Now, the reason he could do that and the reason he could call Lazarus out of the tomb is because a week later, he would be himself going into the tomb, dying, taking on himself every aspect of evil, not committing it, but being the victim of it, um, experiencing the wrath of the Father. And by that means, uh, fully atoning, fully uh, expiating um, evil. And then in his resurrection... And you can't speak of the death without the resurrection. That's, I think, a mistake some evangelicals make. Um, We've been helped around here by uh, Richard Gaffin's amazing work. But the resurrection is is what actually justifies us. Um, And um, we then have our new life both representationally because we are just and acquitted and vitally because we begin to have new life in Christ uh, in his resurrection power. So those that's a very brief answer, but uh, the death and resurrection of Christ is is the ultimate answer mm-hmm. to the problem of evil. It has to be. Now, clearly this is a, a much different approach um, than that of uh, contemporary and also just Western science. Uh, the scientists have had a whole host of other approaches uh, to the world and um a different worldview about what evil might be and how we can explain it. Um, what did the earlier scientists believe about God? And uh, did that mindset shift over the years? Yeah, absolutely. So m- most historians would agree, even the atheist ones like Richard Dawkins, that uh, modern science was the child of a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. And you can think of that a bit in the Middle Ages, but mostly in the Reformation and beyond. The Royal Academy, full of Christians who wanted to, um, some of them wanted to give us back the world that Adam had lost. But uh, for all kinds of reasons, they founded this marvelous discipline that we call science, which allows us to explore the world, to understand its laws. Now, in the 18th century, I'm being very rapid here, but in the 18th century, uh, as Francis Schaeffer says, uh, the dome was closed and uh, God was left out of the equation. Uh, which the earlier uh, scientists would never have wanted. 
it was assumed that we could understand the world and its laws without reference to God. And, of course, soon you needed explanations for things like good and evil, but you needed them without God if you're committed to an Enlightenment worldview. So when the dome was closed, you flail around looking for things, and one of the answers was uh, evolutionism. Uh, John Lennox helpfully says when he's writing uh, about scientists that are atheists that they've crossed a line between doing science and and doing philosophy. If you just do science, you don't have to be uh, atheistic. You don't have to be a Darwinist. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, if you are uh, crossing that line uh, into philosophy, then you're, you're committed to some explanation for good and evil that does not need God or puts them at a great distance. In the case of Darwin and the Neo-Darwinists, um, it's the necessary condition of our evolutionary past. Um, the popularizers like Desmond Morris and others would say, when we were primates, um, there was a bunch of conflicts between the s- smaller but intelligent primates and the bigger brutish primates. The smaller intelligent ones learned to use weapons, and they killed off the big brutish ones. So we're we're now um, direct heirs of the smaller uh, smart primates. But of course, that's why we have violence because we used we learned how to use weapons, and uh, that's why we have wars. Well, it's a hopeless explanation, but that's the the t- kind of popular explanation sure. you get from an evolutionist point of view. How does a, an evolutionist or a Darwinist, I would I would say even more than that, just a materialist, deal with the fact that there's violence in nature? And I struggle to understand how a materialist doesn't also have a problem of good. You mentioned very early on in our conversation of trying to find some sort of standard. And if, if we just think everything is material and that it's evolving towards something just by the natural laws and processes that are in the world – why Why do we even make value judgments or assessments in the first place? Because then if the strong survive, why is that good or bad? Why Why? Why can't we just destroy all the creatures we want to destroy and, and we win? And there are links. You want to be careful to say this not too strongly, sure. but there are links between the general tenets of, of Darwin and um, Darwinism with the more uh, violent, uh, self-willed, philosophical and political movements of the 20th century um, that basically said something like, um, well, if struggle is the nature of our of our past, then let's just turn it into something that's uh, for our own good. So guess what? The survival of the fittest means I'm deciding I'm going to be fit and I'm going to survive and n- never mind that other people don't have that, that right. Mm-hmm. And then your your observation is correct. I think that we, where do we find a standard for good and evil and all that? If all there is is struggle, um, Nietzsche, though he didn't ever go as far as he could have, he, he gave the implication that uh, it's all about power. Uh, there isn't really a good and evil. Foucault would would actually say he's an heir to Nietzsche. Yeah. There there isn't really good and evil. It's just power, and um, he Foucault thinks that those who are in, in a position of power shouldn't be there. Therefore, there ought to be toppling of those people. But he has no, absolutely no uh, transcendent standard which allows him to say, well, but my move is good, yours is bad. And it's all, you know, it's, it's all relational, too, for him. Yeah. The power is everywhere in relationships. And even somebody who might 
we might think is not in a in a position of top down power. Nevertheless, they might exert power over over a traditional authority in other ways. It's it's very uh, complex, but you know, he is the heir of Nietzsche. That's for sure. Oh, the, the question I was going to ask is: as we look out in the world and we see uh, nature red in tooth and claw, uh, the question may arise: is this uh, the result of the fall, or are there elements of the nature that are red in tooth and claw that are part of God's creation? Is, uh, how would you mm-hmm. assess that? Again, this is a this is a judgment call, and there's controversy. Uh, my own take is that some of the tooth and claw is a part of God's creation. If you read Psalm 104, uh, there's predators. Uh, you don't have to say Psalm 104 is only about a fallen world, but it's the glory of God in the world the way it is. Um, but some of it, of course, is obviously uh, the result of the curse. Sure. God c- cursed the ground, and he put fear between the animals and mankind uh, during Noah's covenant. So some of that is, uh, and I think both are there. In the new heavens and new earth, that's an even harder question. Um, do, will there be any kind of conflict, or will there be any kind of um, untamed aspects? Plants uh, <laughs> that live off of death? Plant you know? death, you know, that doesn't seem right. too hard. But then, you know, you got these images from... Uh, the Old Testament about the lion lying down with the lamb yeah. and the baby playing with the hole of the asp. So are those just images? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I'm expecting the new heavens and new earth to be an incredibly peaceful place, but I'm not saying there will be zero, um, you know, animal competition or anything like that. That's yeah. why I raised the question, you know, if you're looking at it and you just assume that all nature ridden tooth and claw is, is the fall – you're going to look at that one one way, where if you yeah. right, you, if you think that there's a mix, then you're going to assess it differently, mm. right? And there's going to be discussion. Uh, um, there's extremes here. I once had a discussion with a, a man who was uh, committed to intelligent design, and um, we had just had the tsunami oh, in yeah. uh, the South Pacific. It had killed hundreds of thousands of people. And he said to me, oh, well, you know, um, that's, the, that's the way it is in nature. Um, we need one or two of these every century for the f- world to function. So I said to him, well, what about the hundreds of thousands who died? And, and I'm not making this up. He said, oh, they shouldn't be living on the seaside. That was his answer. So I mean, that's an extreme that says the way things are today is f- the way it always has been except for human sin. Now, I, I completely reject that. The other extreme would be to say... Um, in the peaceable kingdom, there will be absolutely no conflict whatsoever, no competition. You know, even you know, birds won't be able to pick worms. I mean, I think that's another ex- extreme. Uh, so th- the answer is some sort of tertium quid. Um, I'm thinking. Yeah, interesting. Now, evil came into the world. Um, 
certainly not a good thing by definition, but also uh, that, that doesn't preclude the fact that God can use it for good. You know, at the end of Genesis, we see Joseph's words to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Uh, Jeff and I were talking earlier about uh, some of Jonathan Edwards' views, uh, the Felix Culpa. Felix Culpa. Happy fall. That's another take on things, whether or not, you know, we want to discuss that's another matter, but... How would you see evil falling into God's overarching plan and purpose and demonstrating his own glory? How could God use evil uh, even to demonstrate um, who he is? So one image you could use is martial arts. I I don't practice them. I wouldn't be able to. But I understand from those who do that your uh, artistry is in using the enemy's strength against him. Uh, you know, he's he's going to hit you and you just take that strength and you turn it into um, a, a toppling of the enemy. That That's uh, – it's inadequate, but it's – it, I think it says something about how God, once evil is in the world, which he didn't uh, create and he's not the author of, he, of course, uses it for his purposes. And we see that all over the Bible. Um he, you know, whispers false prophecies uh, into people. He uh, t- t- turns the Chaldeans against the Israelites. He, and the ultimate, of course, case of that is um, his wrath against his his beloved son at Calvary. Uh, so, this is again, I think, a uniqueness of the Christian faith is that rather than evil being an embarrassment. Um, that kind of we have to let God off the hook as much as we can. We say, no, God um, is fully in charge and works with it, but always for his own good purposes. We don't always see how. Uh, Paul tells us all things work together for good for those who are his called people. But that doesn't mean all things are good, nor does it mean we we can always see exactly how, you know, someone dying of leukemia is concerting for the good, but he. But we are assured that it's true. Um, he his purposes can only be ultimately good, um, but he uses evil for those for those purposes. Um, it's astonishing to think that the Apostle Paul actually celebrated his suffering, not not in a kind of masochistic way, but because it was a sign for him that God was working in him, perseverance, character, and hope, which mm-hmm. will not put to shame. So that, that, again, is, I think, a unique feature of, of the gospel. Um, we, following God's um, pattern, now must go and work against evil um, wherever we find it, in ourselves, in our neighbors, uh, in the famines around the world, in, in the corruption, in, you know, grab for power, all those things we need to work against because God is working against them. Um, and uh, though God's in charge of evil, um, he doesn't compose with it. He's not satisfied to let it stand on its own and, and, and be ignored. You know, you bring up many issues that would typically fall under the category of, of social justice concerns. Um, what's a helpful way for us to understand social justice as uh, Calvinists and, and Christians who uh, see evil in the world and suffering, but also understand that God is ultimately in control, has his plan and purposes. What's a, What would be your particular take on on uh, how Christians can and, and should be involved in social justice, but in a way that is faithful to 
the scriptures rather than taking its cue from, you know, worldly politics, for instance, or something like that. Yeah, well, we could begin with Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth where he quoted Isaiah um, and said, here, here it is, you see it now being fulfilled. In that Isaiah passage, uh, you not only have the preaching of the gospel, but you have healing, you have the poor being comforted. It's a gospel that both saves you with a passage to the new heavens and ameliorates yourself and society at the same time. So in the New Testament, you just don't have to choose. Um, I think maybe one of the great pioneers in all of this is Harvey Kahn, who uh, wrote about how uh, preaching grace and doing justice both belong to evangelism. Uh, he says, you don't, it's not a choice. It's not first this and then that. It's both and. And I, I find that very helpful. The extremes, again, if you just preach uh, grace and and either don't care about justice or you say, well, it's going to be treacled down, mm-hmm. uh, then you're not following that sermon of Jesus. If you just preach social justice or, or just work, do it, do it, it yeah. yeah, accomplish it, and uh, you don't preach preach grace, then uh, you get into the liberation theologies, you know, which are just Marxism warmed over. So, uh, again, Harvey Kahn's image is good here. He likens this dilemma to the spirit and the body. Uh, So he says, spirit-only evangelism is like a person who is just a spirit. Well, that makes him a ghost. Body-only uh, social justice and so forth is like a person who is a body only, well, he's a corpse. So you don't want to be either a ghost or a corpse. You want to be a human being. <laughs> Psychosomatic unity. Hey, I amen. like that. This has been a good discussion. I mean, other than just summing up, but this has been a helpful discussion. Yeah. I think it will be helpful to our listeners. I'm very thankful for this book and, and for the entire series Um it's uh, it's so helpful to have, especially now I'm in pastoral ministry to have books like this. We can hand these out to people that are that are struggling, and it's a very succinct, concise, you know, um, addressing of the issue in a way that that I can afford and hand out right. to people. I guess I could. I I was thinking as we were wrapping up the discussion, and of an experience I had now about eleven years ago, uh, taking a course, uh, a PhD seminar, and we were. Uh, talking about the problem of evil, uh, and it was a seminar on Jonathan Edwards, and the uh, professor uh, had a problem with Edwards' notion of evil being a part of God's plan. It didn't take it ser- He didn't think it took it seriously enough. Now, I disagreed with the professor, but it was interesting that in the middle of the conversation, I felt there that there had been a shift from the academic to the personal and discovered later that uh, this professor had had a child killed by a drunk driver. And at that point, and and, uh, one of my classmates and I, both of us sensed that there was something different going on. And so we changed our response from a purely academic to, okay, dare I say pastoral in in a counseling-oriented situation, which is very unusual you know you don't expect that to happen in a classroom environment so this this is an issue that hits home uh, and it's not purely academic but it is also personal yeah and the whole open theism movement is an attempt to say god understands he's on your side he 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 didn't do this to you it's a it's a very 
fallacious attempt to do that. Um, I once had an open theist tell me um, the last thing you need when you're in a oppressed situation is a sovereign God. And I answered him, I think that's the first thing you need. Because what he was trying to say is that uh, if God is sovereign, then it's his fault, which is, as we've said earlier, that's a distinction uh, the Bible makes. Um, It's an amalgam that the Bible refuses to make, uh, that he's in charge and therefore to blame. But, um, yeah, the the sovereignty of God is not just a doctrine. It's a a pastoral matter. And um, it's, it's one of great comfort to people who are suffering when they rightly understand it. Uh-huh. But it's so helpful to have an element of persuasion. I mean, that's part of yeah. apologetics, too. I it mean, is. you can win the argument and lose the man. Indeed. And and it's helpful to be reminded of, of the scriptures and also in a persuasive way that addresses the heart. It's not always just intellectual problems that people have. Most often that's that's the second or third or last issue <laughs> at hand. <laughs> it's other things that are going on. Well, Dr. Edgar, we want to thank you so much for inviting us and allowing us to come over to the office to see it's you in pleasure. person. And uh, thanks so much for writing this book, and we look forward to putting it in the hands of many people. Thank you so much, Camden. We want to point people back to our various websites for more information. First of all, you can check out Westminster online at wts.edu. Do you have any projects? I know you're involved with so many different organizations would you like to, to mention some things, maybe Aix-en-Provence, or, or yeah. do you have any other I mean, initiatives? I, I'm on? involved in a lot of different things. Uh, Aix-en-Provence is a seminary in uh, southern France, which is a Calvinist seminary, mm-hmm. and I'm very, very deeply committed to that. And we have friends there. Friends yeah. there. Yannick so, is, is teaching yeah, there. Yeah, Yannick. Yeah. He's been on the program before. Has he? Yeah. yeah. Well, he's been there five years now, mm-hmm. and he's the apologetics professor and doing a great job. He just re- finished a book in French on reformed apologetics. Oh, it'll be th- it'll be a first and it, it is a good one. Uh yeah, and I'm involved with the European Leadership Forum which uh meets every year in Poland uh which gathers European leaders. <laughs> and uh we're this year we're doing something quite astonishing. Um I'm leading a field trip to Auschwitz. Oh, my. Yeah, and so we're preparing for it, and then we're going to visit, and then we're going to debrief. Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about Auschwitz. Um, and then, um, you know, I do a fair amount with music. Um, I uh, I help run a jazz band, and we perform all over the world. Uh, we just came back from Wales um, performing there. We were at All Souls Church in London. I say performing, if you mean by that, you know, entertainment. We we, we actually were do part of the ministry. Um, I mean, entertainment's great, but we weren't there to entertain. And then um, I'm writing uh, quite a bit. Uh, the big one now that's quite daunting for me, but it, I'm in the middle of it, is a, a biblical theology of culture. So it'll be... Much, uh, much needed. I in hope. I, yeah, if I can figure this out, it, it'll be. It ought to be helpful to people. But I'm still trying to figure it out. Wonderful. Well, we want to thank you once again, and we want people to visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you will find information about all of our programs, as well as how to get in touch with us. You can email us at mail at reformedforum.org or tweet us at reformedforum. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.